Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws in American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. The NWF Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Hunt to Eat, an inclusive hunting apparel company with a focus on community, real food, and conservation. Check out Hunt to Eat's NWF line, wild game recipes, and hunting and fishing designs at hunttoeat.com. And enter the code WILDLIFE10 to get 10% off your order. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors Podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. And I'm without my co-host, Drew Youngdike, today. He is off chasing deer in the Michigan woods at the time being. Uh, and today, we're lucky to have Matt Kaufman with us. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing, doing well. Nice to uh, be on the podcast. Well, thanks for coming, Matt. We're lucky to have Matt. Matt is a, he's a research biologist with the United States Geological Survey, and he's the lead scientist at the Wyoming Migration Initiative, which is based out of the University of Wyoming in Laramie. He has a PhD from University of California and is the lead author of The Atlas of Wyoming's Ungulates. If folks have seen that, it's a really cool publication. Uh, he's also worked on and researched everything from peregrine falcons and wolves to carnivores in Africa. And for the last 15 years, he's been conducting research on the seasonal movements of ungulates, mule deer, elk, bison, moose, etc., in the Western United States and is a leading authority on their migration, ecology, and conservation. So we're lucky to have him. Uh, and first off, Matt, we always ask our guests what they've been up to outside. This is NWF Outdoors podcast, so we need to know what it's looked like outside for you lately. So give us a little insight on that, please. Yeah, you bet. I guess um, most recently, I mean, we've just gotten some snow here in Laramie, and most recently, 
we've been kind of getting out for a little hike. It's not quite uh, cross country ski weather that we don't have enough snow for that, but uh, we were able to get out for just a nice hike in the snow and the wind. And um, and a couple weeks before that, I did get out for a, a pronghorn hunt. Um, was unsuccessful. I only had a day to, to get out, but uh, we kind of got weathered out, but we saw a lot of animals. Um, but winter is definitely, uh, definitely settling in here in Wyoming. Good. You probably spent a couple calm 20, 30 mile an hour windy days in Laramie. I'm familiar. <laughs> so I know how those go. Uh, I've been on the great elk chase with my 15 year old son still this fall. We have yet to, to end that chase. We're still working on it. We'll be working on it some more at the end of the week. So that's been taken up nearly all my time outside as our listeners know uh that i've been on that chase so i won't bore anyone with any more details of that we've we've had opportunities we've he's lowered the scope on a handful of animals but uh you know especially for that first one you want it to be really good and and make sure it's it's solid and and some sort of mistake or something doesn't mar the very first time someone harvests an elk so we've been prudent and we're having a ton of fun and i'm lucky to have extra time due to COVID this year uh, with my boy as opposed to be traveling around or whatever I'd normally be doing. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Matt, let's dive in. Um, you know, give our listeners, you know, we hear this word migration and it's thrown around. I think everybody kind of knows the definition, uh, but, but just tell us what is migration in the eyes of a researcher and why should folks who care about wild animals be thinking about this? Yeah. Um... Sure. So migration is, I mean, it's sort of classically defined as the movement, uh, distinct movements between distinct seasonal ranges. So non-overlapping ranges, you know, basically meaning that during winter you're in one place and during summer you're in a different place. Um, And of course, you know, when we think about migrations, we also often think about the long distance um, avian migrations, which can span the entire globe. But with... um, with deer and elk, um, so-called ungulates, um, you know, their migrations are terrestrial, of course, and and they tend to go. At least in the in the in the American West, they tend to, they tend often to move from the from the mountains down to the plains or the sagebrush basins. So you have summer ranges up in the mountains. That's kind of where all the good food is. Um, but then during winter, they 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 descend down to the to the sagebrush basins where um, there's much less snow and, and maybe a little bit of that sagebrush is sticking up so they can still get a little bit to eat. Great. So, I mean, why, why should people care about these? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's actually a lot of impediments if you think about it. And, and sometimes people don't sit there and go, well, what would impede that? But Talk a little bit about why we should care and what is, what are, take a, take a mule deer. What, what is it facing when it tries to make this trek seasonally? Yeah, well, I mean, so I, I think, you know, when we think about the, the migrations themselves, I mean, you're absolutely right that there's an increasing number of impediments, but, but I actually think, you know, we have to sort of back up one step, which is, and I think, and talk about uh, for your listeners here, you know, why these animals migrate. And, um, and that's something that's been the subject of research over the last, you know, couple decades. And it's really critical. And the way I think about it is, 
especially in the American West, um, you just can't make for, 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 for animals like deer, elk, pronghorn, you just can't make a very good living if you stay in one place. And, and to think about that, like you stay in those sagebrush basins, well, that's a fine place to be in the winter, but then when the spring and summer comes, there's no food. There's very little food because they're just really unproductive, right? Yeah. Well, if you try to stay in the mountains, that's a great place to be for spring and summer because there's lots of food there, but animals will never survive in the mountains if you know they're having to, to contend with chest, you know, chest deep snow. They're plowing, they'll be plowing through that snow all winter long, nothing to eat, and they'll just um, they'll they'll die from starvation and burn up all their energy reserves moving through the snow. So, so this is really this is really important. We have tremendous wildlife habitat in the American West, but the animals need to move between the mountains and the plains in order to access it at the right time of year. Um, and so, you know, why is migration important? It's important because this is the driver of, um, of our ungulate populations. Like, you know, the harvestable, harvestable surplus that, uh, that we can go after and pursue every year, that happens because these, produ these populations are productive. And they're productive because they can still migrate and access those seasonal habitats. And um, we, you know, it's really hard to it's really hard to kind of quantify this, but you know, absolutely, we should expect that if if we lost migrations, we'd have far fewer animals. There would there be the, you know the landscape without migration would be able to support far fewer animals in these in these herds across the West. Yeah, I, I think a huge nexus for us, I mean, here at NWF, we work a lot on, you know, where development is sited, the density of development, you know, every time you put a well pad, a house, a road, anything in the middle of where one of these uh, migration pads are, uh, it has the potential to constrict it, to restrict it, to impede, the, you know, the movement of these critters. And that's why I think that folks should, that's one of the things folks should really be thinking about is, you know, if you have a road and that road gets closed, I mean, even if you just do it in human terms, uh, then you have to find a different way around. And if there's not a good way around, then you're not getting where you're going. And that's the simplest way to, to think about that. And obviously there's a lot of variables to it, but that's kind of an easy way. I've talked about it with people who are like, well, what exactly is migration or what's a corridor, you know, to, to help them think about that. Uh, and then, you know, Matt, recently, I think it was, what, three or four days ago, there was a, a, a report that came out and a series of maps. There was an announcement, kind of a culmination of a lot of your work. Tell us exactly what that is that, that, that just happened a few days ago. You know, what it says, what it hopes to do. Talk through that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, we should circle back uh, to kind of the impediments because I think there's been a lot of research there, but, but to, to get into the report, you know, the, the report is in some ways um, kind of an answer to the threat that a lot of those impediments um, represent. Right. And so, so, you know, uh, I guess the, the, the thumbnail sketch of the background here is that across the West, we're making these migrations more difficult. Right. And, yeah, we have, we have also seen that 
Uh, so we're also kind of living in this technological revolution of um, being able to put GPS collars on these animals and literally having the animals show us where their migration corridors are by, by walking it, right? And, um, and then we can take those maps and, and there's a whole bunch of statistical analyses that go into this of like taking all the spaghetti lines of, of where individual animals go, condensing that down, synthesizing that into, you know, a, a corridor that the entire herd uses. And um, when we have those maps, we can now, you know, sort of put these in a GIS, right? Or just kind of like this idea of overlaying the corridors that the animals use with roads, with fences, with oil and gas development, with other habitat types. And that allows us to um, identify where the problem spots are and where the conservation solutions are, like crossing structures or you know, places where we might want to modify fences. Um, so that's kind of that idea of using these maps to advance the conservation on the ground of these migration corridors has been around for a few years. Um, but it's actually kind of technical to take all that data and produce the maps. And so um, several years ago, we started working with other Western states um, and our, our sort of research team here at the University of Wyoming has developed some of the methods uh, about 10 years ago um, to take all those squiggly lines and come up with a corridor. And uh, we started, uh, and then we started talking with other Western states who, um, want, who wanted to apply those same methods to their own data. And these, and by Western states, I mean the state wildlife agencies of, um, you know, of, of these states in the West. And, um, and so that's what we've been doing for the last, uh, you know, since about early 18, we've been working together. We, we assembled this corridor mapping team. And this volume of the report, the first volume, um, has over 40 migration corridors and routes from uh, Arizona, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, and Wyoming. Um, and so this is the first time that all those corridors are being mapped using a similar methodology, you know, in a consistent manner. And they're all, you know, being reported out in the same place. And so you have the report, which is really just kind of an atlas of where all these corridors are. And then there's also a, um, a web viewer at uh, westernmigrations.net. And then um, a lot of these map files can also be downloaded from, um, from a site called ScienceBase, which is the public data archive of the US Geological Survey, which is my employer. And we'll put all those in the show notes too, so folks know where to go and, and look for them. So what is what are these what is this report and what is the what are these maps kind of what are they looking to help the public understand where they are what they do you know kind of dive into the breadth of what that is supposed to accomplish by releasing them out to folks yeah well maybe maybe um to relate maybe maybe the best way to answer that is maybe to relate kind of a, a story uh in wyoming uh, one of the 
kind of poster, the poster children of, of migrations um, is this mule deer migration that our group works on. Um, it's referred to as the Red Desert to Hoback migration. And it's kind of, it's kind of famous because it's the longest one that's been recorded so far. But it's, and, and this is a migration that goes for, you know, for folks that are somewhat familiar with this area. They winter down near Interstate 80, near the town of Rock Springs. Um, and then they migrate um, up along the foothills of the Wind River Range and then up into, um, they get to their summer range in the, in the, the Hoback, uh, the drainage of the Hoback River. And this is sort of like just south of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So that's a 150 mile migration. And uh, this was one of the first herds that we mapped using this, this, this technique. And the reason we did it is because when you step back in a place like southwestern Wyoming and you look across 150 miles, the, the thing that we first noticed is like, whoa, these animals have to move through a lot of different country. They, they, they cross, you know, close to 100 fences three or four different highways. They have, um, they go in and out of private lands. It's just, it's just really complicated. And so, so we mapped that route. We created this kind of uh, corridor that everybody could, you know, we mapped it, we provided it to everybody. So everybody was on the same page of where the corridor was. And then when we did that, we started to see some of the advantages. So one of the things that that map showed us is that, one of the most, the top threat to the persistence of that route, of that corridor, was a, a little spot, a quarter mile bottleneck near the town of Pinedale, Wyoming. And this is a place where at this point, you have four to 5,000 animals squeezing through this quarter mile bottleneck. You got the town of Pinedale to the south and it's, and it's sort of expanding. Um, you know, the suburbs are sort of expanding up to this bottleneck. And then it's on the other side of the bottleneck is this deep glacial lake uh, called Fremont Lake. So twice a year, four to 5,000 animals have to squeeze through this bottleneck. And when we mapped it, we also learned that, of course, when you map it, you can see the bottleneck, but you, we also learned that right at the bottleneck, right at the outlet of the lake was a 360 acre parcel of private land that was slated for development of little lakeside cottages that would literally have plugged up the migration. And so armed with that information from mapping the corridor, uh, the conservation fund raised $2 million to purchase that piece of property. And instead of it being uh, turned into lakeside cottages, it was turned into, wild, into a wildlife habitat management area and given over to the state, uh, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department to be managed expressly for, uh, to maintain uh, the movement of animals through, through, the, through that, that place just south of Fremont Lake. And so, you know, the mapping, so that's, so that's, that's kind of key, right? The, the mapping helps us understand how to keep these migrations open. And, um, and it's kind of, that story I think is really interesting because like we focus a lot on the 150 miles, um, which, which is impressive that, that it's an, it's an impressive, uh, chunk of land to move across twice a year. But when we think about the conservation of that corridor, it was 360 acres. 
it was, that was what it was important to make sure that those 360 acres didn't get developed. Yeah, that's impressive. I mean, if you think about it, if we didn't have that information, that development would have happened. Who knows? It might have been chaos after that. Who knows where those animals would have went? Um, so that information is is critical. Four or five thousand animals is no small chunk of bungulate cruising through there. So that's a huge success story. So what yeah. do you hope this? Go ahead. Say oh yeah, I was just going to say. So these, you know, so these types of maps. So that was just one map, right? But now in this report, you know, you have those types of maps in Idaho and Arizona and Nevada. And so um, you can see where these animals go across Interstate 80, go through gold mines, come up close to, uh, you know, subdivisions. Um, and, and it's not to say, I, I, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, all of these corridors are new discoveries because, because in most cases they're not. Um, the wildlife managers who are there on the ground, um, in most cases, know the general flow of the animals, you know, generally where they're wintering and where they're summering, but, but it's really hard to manage. You know, it's really hard to pinpoint that 360 acre parcel um, without the detailed map. And that's, and that's what this report gives us. And so now, you know, now um, anybody's uh, can use those maps. Um, anything from, you know, of course the state wildlife agencies who are charged with managing these herds, the federal agencies who are managing the habitat, um, but also, you know, different uh, land trusts who are trying to conserve some of the big private ranches um, that these corridors depend on, um, other groups that are modifying fences, the Department of Transportation that are, you know, uh, identifying places where, um, where they need to put in road crossings to reduce road mortalities. So these maps are just um, incredibly useful for figuring out how to, you know, how to keep these landscapes stitched together so that these corridors can continue. Good. So is the hope for this to, to be something that managers use? Is it for the public to be educated? You know, what, what's the ultimate goal? Where, where will this land if it lands how you all see fit? Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think, I think what we've seen uh, in Wyoming, and I think this is, this is probably resonates across the West, which is that um, the thing that's challenging about maintaining these migrations is you know, you think of a 150 mile migration or a hundred mile migration, you can't move a hundred miles across the American West and stay on one type of land. For the most part, you know, especially if you're going to go, if, if you're something like a mule deer that's going from, you know, low elevation winter range up into the mountains, that typically means that you're going to move through some lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management up onto the forest. Um, you know, there's huge tracts of private land that are sort of often stitching the, um, the winter ranges and the summer ranges together. There's state lands. Um, and, the, and, the, and the point I'm making is that, is that the, these animals are moving across these multiple use landscapes. And so, 
in order. So that really challenges how we conserve them, right? So in order to conserve them, it's, you know, it's a kind of all hands on deck kind of approach that's needed. And what I mean by that is that, you know, down on the winter range where they rely on BLM lands, you know, there we might use the corridor map um, to better plan for oil and gas development. Like for example, with uh, directional drilling, moving the well pads outside of the corridor and drilling for the gas that's directly underneath it, you know, directionally. Um, and then when that, when that corridor gets to a big, uh, you know, a big private ranch that, you know, has essentially, you know, the ranchers have, a, have essentially been stewarding these corridors by keeping those, keeping those big ranches uh, running cattle on them, but, but essentially keeping, you know, those things are totally consistent. So they're still um, permeable to, you know, a mule deer or elk or pronghorn. Um, but of course, those ranches are uh, subject to development. So now that's not a federal thing. It's not a state thing. You know, it's the land trusts that, that work to identify those and, and work with ranchers um, to put conservation easements on them to reduce development. Um, you know, and then you get up to a road and it's a different state agency and then you get up to the forest and it's now it's, you know, now it's the forest service, or maybe it goes into the park, you know, at Yellowstone or Grand Teton or some other uh, national park. So like, there's all these different jurisdictions that the animals have to cross as they go from winter range to summer range. And um, now all of those different stakeholders will have the same map. Yeah, that's good. And, and not to mention the, the variability in habitat type. Each of those pieces of land is not created equal to the to the elk or the mule deer or the pronghorn. There's some that they definitely would prefer to hang out on uh, over others just to add it, to the layers of fun. Yeah, for sure. For sure, like stopovers, That's that's been a big um, uh, topic of research for mule deer in particular. They, they tend to, uh, as they're migrating, both in spring and fall, they, they don't just zip. I mean, sometimes they do, but those these longer ones, they don't just zip up to summer range. They take their time and they, and they stop over and feed for days, even weeks at a time in places that are really high, you know, high, highly productive sites. And then they move on to the next one as they, as they head up into the mountains. Good. So, I mean, Matt, one of the things I think is interesting, too, is what other things are, are we doing to study migration? You know, I mean, it, the sexy stuff is kind of like, you know, oh, wow, look at where they went. It was 100 miles or, you know, they went here or there. But what are the other things you're looking at when you're when you're studying migration as a whole? I think um, one of the most exciting things I think that we've learned is this um, this idea called uh, surfing the green wave, which, uh, you know, sounds like something you might throw around at a cocktail party. Um, but, uh, and, but, and, and, and we didn't create, uh, you know, we didn't make that up. This was actually um, a term coined by, um, by waterfowl biologists who are you know, trying to understand the migration of like barnacled geese in Europe. Uh, but the idea is, um, for, for, for an animal like a mule deer or other, other ruminants, um, they're, 
you know, they're herbivores, of course, they eat grasses and forbs, but, but not all of that plant matter is, is created equal. What they really, what they really like to eat is what we kind of refer to as the spring salad mix. So, you know, when you go to the grocery store, like yeah. it does little baby greens, right? Sure. And we eat the baby greens because they're, because they're tasty. And that's because they're, they're like high in protein content, sugars, um, and they're low in fiber. They're easy to digest, right? And that's the same thing these mule deer are going for. Because if you eat those baby greens, then you can literally like digest that plant material more quickly in their stomach, right? Whereas if, so as plants grow and they, they um, you know, they, they have to put on all this structure to, to flower and, and, um, and then set seed. And that structure is fiber, right? So, you know, you go, you go and you, you know, you go into a, uh, you know, some big meadow with grasses and forbs that are, you know, up to your chest. Well, by that time, there's a lot of green biomass there, but it's, it's not that accessible for the deer because it's really hard to digest. Um, so what they do, so this is what green wave surfing is. When they're migrating, they go to the first patch, they stop over. The plants are just greening up there. There's a lot of baby greens. They, they eat all those baby greens. But then as those plants grow up and mature, you know, it becomes off peak for them. And so they continue on up the mountain to the next stopover where the plants are just greening up again. And, you know, the green wave has just gotten there and they eat those baby greens and then they continue on and they keep doing this stopover after stopover all the way up. Sometimes this takes six weeks, even two months from winter range to summer range. And all the while, you know, they're extending their exposure to, to spring and to the best food um, that, that they're going to experience year, you know, uh, across the whole year. And so, so this is called surfing the green wave and, and it was put forward in birds. And um, um, we had a PhD student, Ellen, Ellen Akins, who was co-advised by myself and, and Kevin Monteith, who um, did a really nice test of this idea in uh, the Wyoming range, which runs north south in Wyoming, right there on the border with Idaho. And um, mule deer are just extremely good at, at doing this. They, over a, a six week to two month migration, um, and we measure all these things from satellites, right? We can tell for every pixel they step on, when was the optimal time for them to be there? And mule deer are like, they're, they're as good as our theoretical predictions would expect. They're just basically always in the right place at the right time. Um, so this has been, so this is, so this idea of surfing is really important because it, it changes how we think about the migration, right? We can map these migrations. The report that we just put out last week is all about maps, right? But, and, and that's important from a conservation perspective to map that corridor and keep it open. But from the mule deer's perspective, it needs the corridor and the freedom to move along that corridor and follow the green wave, right? So it needs both, both the corridor and the freedom of movement uh, to be free from disturbance um, so that they can, they can move along um, and, and, 
you know, being in the right place at the right time means getting the best food, means getting all that energy, which allows them to uh, replenish their fat reserves that they've been burning all winter. Um, so that's so. So that freedom of movement through the corridor um, becomes a, re a really important consideration when we think about um, how to keep these corridors open. Yeah, that's really cool. We had Kevin on, uh, Kevin Monteith on, and maybe a while back, he, he shed light on some really interesting other little kind of ancillary pieces to to what they're learning about the rose petal hypothesis and some of the mm -hmm. stuff I'm sure you're aware of that's, that's really cool. Um, I guess an, another thing to think about is, you know, you've collaborated with a handful of journalists and photographers and, and others to help tell this story. You know, what is it that you work with them to convey? I mean, what, what do you want people to know the most? Uh, you know, there's a lot of science type stuff that's the data, but, but those folks are really just kind of making it accessible for the layperson. What do you, what do you hope to, to achieve with that? And what do you want them to show people? Yeah, well, so in, um, I guess, uh, you know, about a decade ago, we, we were doing this work, um, collaring animals, um, kind of starting to map their migrations, learning about how they make these migrations. And, um, and I saw a talk by uh, Joe Reese and Emmeline Ostland, who um, had had hiked the path of the pronghorn, this, this migration that goes from Pinedale up over the Grovance yeah. down into Jackson Hole. Um, and they hiked that. And of course, Joe is a photographer, does a lot of work with National Geographic now. He, he kind of um, was one of the first people to you know use these trail use really nice um dslr cameras but set up in a trail camera type of um situation and got you know incredibly detailed photographs and videos of pronghorn you know right along their migrations and um so joe sort of told that story through videos and photos and then emmeline hiked the entire corridor and told that story from the perspective of what she was seeing on the ground and and how that helped her understand what those pronghorn were going through on their migration and i went and saw one of their talks and i was just i was really impressed by how uh how that story of the path of the pronghorn resonates so strongly with the public like we and especially the way Joe and Emmeline did it, you know, they were sort of right down there with the animal and you could see the river crossings and you could see the fences that they had to, to go across. And um, I think we intuitively, when we, when we get a glimpse into those migrations, we intuitively recognize that, A, and this, is, this is an arduous journey, so it must be important, right? And B, um, you know, there are obstacles along here and, 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 and a lot of those are man-made, right? Um, and so I just kind of had this, this epiphany that, um, you know, we knew these migrations were important. We knew the public was really interested in them, but here we were, you know, sort of just plugging away, writing our papers for peer reviewed journals. And even though the public had this great appetite 
for learning about the migrations and also uh, you know the state agencies and federal agencies they they were also starting to ramp up their focus on managing and conserving these corridors and so we kind of recognized that um, we were gathering a lot of information that could help this effort help the public learn more about these migration and help management agencies better manage them um, but the way we the way we sort of do business in, in conducting research and writing academic papers really wasn't bridging that divide. And so in 2012, we, we created the Wyoming Migration Initiative with the goal of essentially translating the research that, that we were doing uh, and making it more actionable for uh, a variety of different stakeholders that you know, were interested in, in working to do, do the on the ground conservation. Nice, and there's been some films and, and other things about critters along the way. Um, you know, that, that makes me think of a question, too, um, because you see this, this paradox with, with the scientific community, the anthropomorphizing of animals, right? Saying, like, this is the deer Jenny or whatnot. <laughs> you know, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, does that help your work? Does that make it harder when you see that kind of thing? Yeah, um... Yeah, that's a good question. It, I mean, we've definitely, so it, as, as you may know, um, we've, we have, uh, w- one of the things that, that we have done through the Wyoming Migration Initiative is um, we've tracked in some individual deer. And um, the first one that we tracked was a deer that, that ended up getting named Jet. And, <laughs> and it's kind of, it was just, we didn't really think about naming her, but it, it just so happened that one of my grad student whose whose name is Brett Jesmer um, kind of put together this homemade collar that went on her and and in the lab Brett's nickname was Jet and so one of the other students wrote on that collar you know Jet uh, because it was the the collar that Brett had made and then and then that animal made one of those long 150 mile migrations and then and then she happened to be the animal that, that we then put a, um, a really high-powered GPS collar that, that we could keep track of every day. Um, we, we, we swapped out that collar and, and put a fancier one on her so we could kind of live track her. And, um, and the name went with her. And, and so, you know, when we started tracking her, it became, you know, Jet's journey. And, uh, and it's interesting, I think... Um, I think you know we've done lots of other things where we where we track entire populations, um, and they just don't resonate as well as um, as one animal, one individual, and um, and people got uh, and we 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 share a lot of this over social media, um, and people got you know especially on our Facebook page, people got really interested in just you know following along on Jet's journey. And, you know, we'd tell them if she had fawns and if she was pregnant and how much fat she'd lost over winter. And, um, and it just became a really, um, a really kind of powerful vehicle to tell Jet's story. And of course she takes six to eight weeks to migrate. So we send out weekly maps and each one, you know, we kind of, the, our audience is, is, is seeing the, the adventure of Jet's journey and following it week by week. And then, you know, we're peppering in little things about 
stopping over and surfing the green wave and, you know, losing fat over winter. You know, we're sort of peppering in all these little ecological tidbits to help people learn about the migration ecology. Um, and uh, so that's been, that's been, I think, really successful. Jet has since passed on and uh, we're actually tracking a new animal named Joe. Um, and interestingly, you know, I mean, of course, one of the pitfalls with naming animals is, is what happens when they die. And, um, and, um, and that, you know, is admittedly can be kind of a public information challenge, especially when you have carnivores or, or predators. Um, but with mule deer, you know, when Jet died, it was from winter malnutrition. And so, you know, when she died, we just sort of wrote up a post about how harsh the winters can be. And of course, this is, you know, it's not Jet's fate in that winter was not unique. That's something that that mule deer populations are faced with across the West when we have really long, hard winters. Um, so, um, so we just, so when that happened. You admit a net gain that you use their names or give them names. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I mean, there wasn't, I guess, I guess there wasn't any, uh, there wasn't any sort of blowback when that happens. We kind of described how she had died and, um, and tried to, uh, help our, our audience, you know, learn a little bit from, um, you know, the factors that influence winter malnutrition. Do you think it, it, it garners a bigger audience or just just more investment in the animals because they give them a name? I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of fascinated by this. And I know I was talking to some people about about, you know, talking with you. And that's something that came up as well. You know, this this want to do that by people, they want to somehow make them like somebody they know almost, you know, and how that helps or hurts or, you know, uh, to continue to think about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think the naming helps, helps people. I, I mean, of course, of, of course we manage populations, right? So, you know, Jet is part of a herd. Um, well, down there in the Red Desert, there's about uh, close, you know, we think there's a, something like a thousand animals. You know, so she's part of, you know, a, a herd that's, that's a thousand other animals. And when we think about the influence of drought or winter severity or, or hunting or disease, you know, we need to be thinking about that at the population level. Um, and, and that's, you know, I think well understood but when we think about, um, you know, these barriers or the challenges to migrate, you know, it's really helpful to see the migration through one animal's eyes. And, um, you know, and Jet was really popular. You know, we'd, we'd have people sort of, um, and one of the things that's, that's kind of unique with following a migratory mule deer is that these animals are moving across the same landscape that we move across, right? So we live down in the valleys and in, on the weekend, you know, we jump in the car and we make these same movements, you know, up into the mountains um, to go camping yeah. or hiking or hunting. 
And so like the scale of their journeys, like we, we have an appreciation for those same journeys because we make them ourselves, right? Um, it doesn't take us four weeks and we don't do it on our feet, right? Um, but, but we, and that means we know those landscapes. And it was, it was one of the things that I always got a kick out of is um, we'd have people commenting on our Facebook page, you know, as when they saw, you know, Jet's latest migration map of like, oh, you know, I never thought she would go over such and such ridge. And I, I, I thought she would have avoided that ridge and gone into this other little creek. And, you know, because they, because these are people that knew that landscape. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I think that's, you know, um, that level of detail and, you know, seeing the, seeing these individual journeys does help, I think, the public see the ways in which we're making them more difficult. Um, or, or, you know, and, and just like, you know, traveling 150 miles across um, these landscapes is, is challenging. And, uh, and, I, and I do think, you know, kind of following these individuals has, has helped people just get a little better glimpse into, um, into what that means and why they do it. Yeah, let's unpack that a little more. I mean, from your perspective, seeing what these animals are facing, what are the threats? I mean, what 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 is it that they're facing that's the most daunting or the most threatening to to carrying out their life cycles? Yeah, well, that's um, well, and and you know, to circle back to the to the to last week's report, I mean, that's why those maps are important. Um, that's why you know. Um, all the state agencies that, that have participated and are participating in the corridor mapping team right now, you know, they've all been, they've all been tracking these animals. They've all, they all value tracking the animals and learning about what habitats they need and require and the seasonal movements. Um, and so, you know, that's why all these agencies have, have, have come together be part of this mapping team and, um, and put these maps together. Um, because everybody, you know, no matter if you're in Wyoming or Utah or Idaho or Nevada, Arizona, you know, the West is growing and, um, and that growth, it's almost inescapable that as the West grows, we are making these landscapes more difficult for animals to migrate through. Um, and, and of course, you know, not all of these barriers are equal, um, but they, but they all kind of, um, you know, they all kind of chip away at, um, how profitable those migrations are. And so, you know, the, the things that, that we've seen, uh, and that agencies, state wildlife agencies have been, you know, trying to mitigate across the West are, you know, roads is, is a huge one. Um, we have, we have highways and freeways that have either gotten so much traffic on them that now they're a fairly substantial source of mortality when animals try to cross the road or, uh, for some of our interstates, there's so much traffic that the animals no longer try to cross them. And so they've severed some of the migrations. Um, so roadways, you know, are, are a growing, uh, threat. And of course with roadways, 
We've also, you know, many Western states have proven up the use of crossing structures, um, overpasses and underpasses, which typically, if, if sited in the right place, have been wildly successful. Um, so then, you know, uh, you get fences. Um, some fences animals can either go under or over, but other ones, you know, woven wire or um, six, eight foot high fences, you know, those can be an incredible challenge for animals. And they, and, and they are also a source of, of, of direct mortality, but also they, they, they can end up, you know, cutting animals off from to access habitats they need to use. Um, subdivisions are another big one. Um, I mean, the West, like we, we can't, these animals can't make these migrations relying on public land alone, right? It's there, there is big swaths of private land that stitch together, hold together the public land from, you know, from, from a, from a migratory ungulates perspective. And so, so that's, you know, that's a huge challenge. Um, we need to keep those big, those big private ranches as working ranches. Um, those, you know, one of the, one of the things that we, the points we often make is, you know, in, in the West and, you know, places like Wyoming, um, you know, we, we still have some of these big um, long distance migrations because the private land is essentially um, exists as these large working ranches, which is totally compatible with migration. Um, and, but subdivisions, if those ranches get subdivided into, you know, a bunch of small little track houses, then you have a, then you have a problem. So keeping those, so identifying those, and if there's a, you know, willing buyer, willing seller um, that wants to do a conservation easement to prevent development. You know, those are those are good solutions. Um, and then, uh, and then the last one I'd mention is, you know, energy development, uh, oil and gas development, wind energy, solar. Like all of these things are increasing. The footprint of all of these things is increasing on the public on the public lands that these um, that these migrations traverse, um, and. And those, you know, those are, those are, there's plenty of research um, showing that those development activities have an impact on the migrations. Um, so it's kind of a challenge to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we keep these migrations intact? How do we keep the animals moving across these landscapes as we continue, you know, to develop? So, I mean, the poster child for, for probably irresponsible development, you know, is the Jonah Field. There's a million pictures out there, and and so on. Was that a migration area, or you know, what what was going on there? I mean, presumably, it looks like not much else is going on there now uh, with with wildlife. But what what was the status there before? Do you know? Yeah. So that's um, you know, it's a good question, and this is and and that question brings up. Um, you know, essentially one of the most difficult challenges of understanding the influence of development. So, you know, in the case of, G of Jonah and the Pinedale Anticline, which is right next to it, you know, uh, the path of the pronghorn, which is that, that migration that Joe and Emmeline uh, tracked, that comes down and, and, and spills down onto winter range 
near Pinedale and, and Jonah. And in the past, um, there were animals that would move through there and keep migrating all the way down to Interstate 80. Um, but, the, but the problem is that we don't have really good pre-development data on that migration. So we don't have, um, you know, the maps that, that, that we've been talking about, you know, we don't have that map pre-Jonah, right? If we did, it'd be much easier to answer your question, right? Um, and, that's, and that's, I think, part of, um, you know, I think that's, um, so, so it's, it is, you know, it's, it's likely that pronghorn have, um, like we've seen in other places that pronghorn respond to the Jonah field. There's actually been some work on this that, you know, they, they tend to do what mule deer do, which is, which is avoid development. And it's kind of like, um, the footprint of that type of development is not huge. We're not like destroying vast tracts of habitat. Um, on some of those fields, it's less than 2% surface disturbance, um, or thereabouts, but the effective habitat loss is much greater because the animals um, won't go into, you know, they, they avoid the, they avoid the, the wells and the high traffic areas. And so there's still a lot of habitat there, but the animals aren't willing to access it. Um, but, but, but again, like this is, this is the problem. We just, we don't, these maps are just coming online now. So it makes it really difficult to assess what we've lost and, um, and what, you know, what levels of development led to that loss. Um, I kind of have the, my suspicion is that we're sort of, we're losing or making migrations more difficult, you know, every year across the West, including for ones that we haven't even mapped yet. Right. So this, so that's why, that's why the maps are, uh, you know, a really necessary next step. Yeah. So for, for hunters and conservationists and thinking about this, boy, this, this migration work is really kind of the tip of the spear on a lot of things. Right. I mean, if you think about the example we shared earlier of the bottleneck up by Fremont Lake, if we had had that information back when, back when before the Jonah field was developed you know maybe we could have done some really strategic investment strategic conservation that could have kept a lot of that accessible even with a big footprint for energy development so I commend you for doing the work it's it's critical and it's a good segue too Matt to, to one of the last things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up and that's just where you see this going in the future and you know how, how are we going to make this better and continue the work and you know utilize it to, to continue the great conservation work that's coming out of it? Yeah, great question. And, and um, well, yeah, and let me just end by saying two things. One, piggybacking on, on kind of what you just said, you know, if we had had the maps, you know, before um, that Jonah field was developed, we could have done things differently. And I think, you know, that's one of the things to me that, is the most hopeful, right? Is that this is a, the, the problem of, you know, the ways in which humans are uh, creating barriers, 
and kind of eroding the, the connections along these migration corridors, you know, that is, that is a problem that is solvable, right? We can fix that problem or we can prevent uh, these corridors from, you know, going down the road to where they're, they're so degraded that the animals no longer use them or no longer make a, a living on them. Um, we have, and, and, you know, part of what I'm saying here is that we now have a lot of different tools in the toolbox, right? And, and we now have these migration maps, which allow us, you know, you know, point out, uh, allow us to identify where the problem spots are. And depending on, you know, what it is, we can, we can modify the footprint of, of, of an energy field or a wind farm, or we can modify fences or uh, prevent, you know, uh, some ranch being subdivided um, or put an overpass over the, you know, we, we can, um, in a way, engineer this landscape, these Western landscapes to keep these migrations um, going. And we, I mean, like you think about other, you know, environmental problems, things like climate change, much, much more difficult um, to address. Migrations, especially in the Western US where we have a lot of resources and we have a lot of science and technology that we can throw at this, like this, this problem is solvable. We have the tools to do it. Um, and, uh, and then the last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about these maps and, um, you know, the goal is, uh, so we're going to continue this work. Um, I think uh, all the Western states that we've been working with recognize the value, uh, the, the importance of, of these migrations to the herds that they manage. Um, and, and so, you know, they've been really enthusiastic. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, they've all collected a bunch of data. Um, and this is, this is hard, hard one data, collaring animals, um, you know, cap capturing them, putting the collars on them, tracking, picking up the collars, managing these huge data sets. Um, all the states have really for the last, um, 10 or 20 years have been investing in the, collecting this type of location data. Um, and now for the last few years, we've been working together as a team, bringing all the sort of technological bits um, and analyses together. And um, it, the team meets once a week, you know, and, uh, and then we, everybody goes back to their individual states and, and, and cranks on the data. Um, and uh, I think we've really kind of put something together here that, um, is, uh, is, is, is working well, as I think is evidence of this first volume of the report. And so, you know, our hope is, is to keep this work going um, through 2000. Uh, in 2020, we've been, we're already working on volume two, which is, um, you know, nearly another hundred um, migration corridors. Uh, and this at, this, at this point in the game, we're working with almost all the states in the, the public land states in the Western US, except for Alaska. Um, so the goal is to, you know, kind of continue this work and, and keep working towards, you know, mapping these important migration corridors so that we can manage and conserve them. Good, and I need to see some more uh, Colorado on there. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I think that's, I think that's coming. I think, you know, there's kind of a, I mean, we've been talking a lot about this sort of collaborative work that we've been doing with the states. Um, but also, you know, a lot of the states have their own internal work um, that they're doing as well. Like Utah, for example, has its own migration initiative. Um, and and um, Montana has a, has a big push on their migrations. Colorado, Colorado um, put out a report just this last summer. So um, there's a lot of, other, you know, I'm sort of talking about this West-wide collaborative mapping work, but there's a lot of work that the states are doing individually as well, including Colorado. Yeah, well, it's cool work. It's it's really important. I'm glad you're you're out there carrying the torch for all of us who, who need to better understand this. And it, it's awesome for conservation. It's awesome. It's coming out of University of Wyoming right there in the center of the West and right there where there is uh, so many cool migrations happening. It's a good place to be doing the work. Um, thanks for all you're doing, Matt, and, and, and your team. Is there anything you want to leave us with, a parting shot before you go? I don't think so. I think uh, this has been this has been great to 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 visit uh, with you, Aaron. And um, I hope your listeners enjoy learning about more more about these um, about these maps. And I guess um, you know, I think as as we talked about, like uh, it, I, I think to some people it can maybe it can maybe seem a little wonky. You know, uh, what's the big deal about all these maps? But um, but in reality, it's it's taken a lot of work. To, you know, to get us where we are, and um, and and in reality, these maps can be incredibly helpful for um, you know charting out a future for the American West that includes you know all the people that are occupying it and all these migratory herds as well. Which is certainly the charge that we have in conservation. So we're glad we have another tool. It's really important. Thanks, Matt. Uh, we'll we'll catch up with you here soon. Take care. All right. Thanks, Aaron. We'll talk to you later. We are NWF Outdoors. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.